Welcome to the New Books in Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figdor. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Michael Humer. We'll be talking about his new book, which is titled The Problem of Political Authority, An Examination of the Right to Coerce and the Duty to Obey. The book is newly published by Paul Grave Macmillan. Michael Humer is professor of philosophy at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Robert Nozick once claimed that the most basic question of political philosophy is, why not anarchy? Political philosophers pose this question often when they intend to demonstrate that there is indeed a good philosophical reason why governments should exist. Indeed, we often simply take for granted that the state and its vast coercive apparatus is morally justified. Similarly, we tend to think that anarchy is both a practically untenable and morally undesirable mode of social association. But a few moments of reflection on the idea of authority suffices to see how curious an idea it is. To have authority is to have a right to create moral obligations in others simply by issuing them commands, and a corresponding right to coerce others when they fail to comply with one's commands. It seems, then, a puzzling phenomenon. The government claims to be able to make it the case that you are morally required to do things simply by the fact that they've told you to do them. And they claim the moral right to imprison you if you fail to do what they say. In The Problem of Political Authority, Humer explores this puzzling phenomenon and defends the conclusion that, in fact, there is no such thing as authority. The problem of authority is an exhilarating examination of a fundamental philosophical problem. So let's turn to the interview. Hello, Michael Humer. Uh, Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you so much for joining us on New Books and Philosophy today. Oh, you're welcome. Well, great. Everyone, today uh, on New Books and Philosophy, my guest is Michael Humer. Michael's new book is titled The Problem of Political Authority, an Examination of the Right to Coerce and the Duty to Obey. The book was published in 2013 by Paul Grave Macmillan, and I highly recommend Michael's book. Um, It takes a lively, rigorous, and engaging look at what many contemporary political philosophers think is perhaps the most fundamental political philosophical question of all, uh, as Robert Nozick put it, why not anarchy? Uh, And um, Humer's answer is, there's no good reason why not anarchy. Um, And so the book is uh, a defense of a version of anarchism and an extended criticism of views that um, purport to demonstrate that there is such a thing as political authority. Um, now, having said that, um, there's obviously a lot to talk about here, and uh, let me stress once again that this is a, uh, a really compelling uh, and engaging book. Um, so before we get to talk about the details, um, Michael, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, so I went to college at UC Berkeley. I got a BA in philosophy. Um, I went to graduate school at Rutgers University in New Brunswick. 
which uh, at the time was the number three ranked philosophy department in the country. Now they're number two because they got some new people since I left. Um, but as um, when I was in college, I met uh, Brian Kaplan, who was also a college student at that time. He's now an economist, and uh, he basically introduced me to anarcho-capitalism, kind of converted mm-hmm. me to anarchism. I was already a libertarian, and he kind of pushed me the rest of the way. Um, and then since I graduated from graduate school in 98, I've been at the University of Colorado in Boulder, uh, I've written three books, including this one that we're talking about today, and uh, something like 50 articles. Um, I've written in epistemology, ethics, metaethics, political philosophy, and just a little bit of metaphysics. Oh, wonderful. Now, before we talk about about the book, can I, can I ask you just a little bit about um, this feature of your work that you just mentioned, which is, uh, you know, you have a, a breadth uh, of philosophical interests um, that... Um, I don't know whether to call it uncommon or not, but it's certainly intriguing in that uh, your other um, book-length works, at least, um, have been in areas uh, moral theory uh, and mm-hmm. epistemology. Um, can you tell us, do you see um, a, uh, a unity, an intellectual or philosophical unity to your work in epistemology, ethics, and now political philosophy, or are these different uh, uh, tracks in your thinking? Yeah, well, there there is a obvious connection. In epistemology, I I defend a theory about how beliefs are justified, and it's a completely general theory. So, and that was, that was introduced in my first book, um, Skepticism and the Veil of Perception. In the second book, Ethical Intuitionism, I defended this um, moral realist position, and I use the same account of how beliefs are justified in general to explain how moral beliefs are justified. Um, and so, you know, in that book, I defend ethical intuition as a way of knowing about moral truths. Um, and then in, in the political authority book, um, you know, there's also some connection in, in that I'm defending conclusions about political philosophy on the basis of common sense morality. And right. so you could look to my previous work to explain why I think common sense morality is justified. Um, right. Now, the, the connections are not all that close because I think these are really different questions. And I do think that there's there's something wrong if the if your work is too connected right? Um, because reality isn't really that simple. Right? Reality is very complicated. So if you talk about different questions, you should have different things to say. Right, right, right. Does um – uh, does the methodological commitment to – I mean, one of the, let me say this. One of the, the methodological things that comes out in the book and that you mention explicitly a few times in the book is that the argument for um, – well, the argument against uh, authority and the argument for anarchism um, relies uh, strictly on um, appeals to um, sort of common sense moral intuitions and one of the things that drives the argument of the book um, are a series of sort of analogical arguments where um, you you claim that the defender of authority um, is is you know making a particular kind of claim about the state and its relation to uh, the individuals under which it um, uh, the individuals under its jurisdiction. And then you say, well, by analogy, let's imagine some ordinary actor claiming to have this relation to another person. Uh, you know, would, would that work? Um, is that part of, uh, or maybe just, can you elaborate a little bit on that, on, on how that sort of role that you give to common sense moral intuitions figures into um, 
uh, your moral philosophy, perhaps, more generally? Yeah, well, I'm just making this kind of simple assumption that normally we should assume that things are the way they appear unless there's a reason for doubting that. And that applies in ethical questions as well as um, non-evaluative factual questions. So uh, if you if there's you can describe a case and if in general people have the same reaction that a particular action in that case is wrong, then we should assume that that's the case unless there's some pretty strong reason for thinking otherwise. And, and I just think that this is the, the foundation of all moral reasoning. Um, now, you know, so it might seem like, at least it seems to me like, it's, it's an obvious methodological point about political philosophy that we should start from, you know, common sense moral beliefs. Uh, when we're evaluating what the state ought to do, we should start from our beliefs about what people ought to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but it seems to me like this is commonly not not appreciated. It seems to me that it's pretty common in political philosophy for people to start from very controversial theoretical claims rather than from you know commonly accepted values. And so right. And, and so one of those claims might be that the state is a disanalogous. Um, uh, or it's not properly um, analogized to a human actor, that there's something special about the state so that what might be forbidden morally uh, in the case of interpersonal uh, interactions um, might be permissible when one of the actors is not a person but a state? Is yeah. that? Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, for a long time it's been very puzzling to me. Um, you know, the, the attitudes that most people have about politics because people very frequently advocate things for the government to do that they wouldn't advocate for anyone else to do. Uh, and, and it's hard to see why. And usually the people don't give any account of why they think the state is different from all other agents. Right. So suppose that I decided that I don't want people consuming unhealthful substances. Right. And so, you know, I just make this announcement to the neighborhood of a list of things that you're not allowed to consume according to me. Right. And then suppose I start hiring armed men to go around looking for people who are consuming the things that they're not supposed to consume. And then, you know, I tell I tell my armed guards to kidnap those people and lock them in a cage. Right. Uh, So, you know, this would be this would be considered very wrongful behavior. People would not just blithely say, well, you know, if he's right about what's helpful, then that's a good policy. Um, Mm -hmm. But people will commonly advocate that sort of behavior for the for the government. Right, right. Um, well, why don't we, uh, on that note, why don't we sort of get into um, uh, some of the particular details? So the book is addressed to the problem of authority. And um, maybe it's sort of a natural place to start in thinking about, uh, the, again, the details of the argument is um, just to ask, you know, okay, what do we mean by authority such that it's a problem? Um, and, and can you frame for us, once we understand what authority is, such that it raises a problem, uh, can you frame for us what the problem is to which the book is addressed? Yeah. So authority is a hypothetical moral property. It's um, The state is thought to have a kind of special moral status that sets it apart from and above other agents. And so, And this special moral status explains why the state is entitled to coerce people in a wide range of circumstances in which no other agent would be permitted to coerce people. Um, so 
that that part, the entitlement to coerce other people, is political legitimacy. The other part of authority is uh, it's generally thought that people are obligated to obey the state's commands, even where they would not be obligated to obey similar commands given by anyone else. Okay, and the that part where I say you know similar commands given by anyone else is important. Uh, it's not just that people think that you're obligated to obey the state and that the state is entitled to use coercion. What's puzzling is that they think you're obligated to obey the state when it tells you to do things such that you wouldn't have to do them if the state didn't tell you, and you wouldn't have to do those things if anybody else told you to do them, right? Mm -hmm. um, and nobody else would be entitled to force you to do those things, okay? So it's this kind of special moral status that's philosophically puzzling, right? And right. we need some kind of explanation of what's so special about this one agent. Right. And so obedience then, in this case, you know, w would be, um, you know, the state issues a command and one obeys it uh, when um, one acts in compliance with the command, uh, or maybe it would be better to say one has the obligation, presumptively, uh, to to act in compliance with the command simply in virtue of the fact that the command has been issued. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, the advocates of authority are not saying you should obey the law because the things that the law says are good ideas. Right. They're saying you should obey the law just because it's the law. Right? right. Now, these people don't have to think that you're obligated to obey every law without restriction no matter what. But they think that at least that there's some reason for obeying a law just because it's a law. Right. Right. And does does coercion then mean what? Uh, f forcing you to do what you otherwise have no reason to do? Or does it involve a, a forcing that you – forcing an individual to do something that they don't want to do or that they yeah. – um, well, so, I mean those seem to me different, right? Um, yeah. Forcing someone to do something that they otherwise wouldn't have a reason to do besides the threat of your force versus forcing someone to do something that they otherwise don't want to do. Yeah. So I mean either of those is coercive. Um, in fact, forcing somebody to do something that they want to do is also coercive, right? Or forcing someone to do something that they have a reason to do is also coercive. Um, now, I, I use coercion in the book in a maybe idiosyncratic way or maybe not exactly the ordinary English way, which is I consider you to be coercing somebody if you use uh, physical violence against them or threaten to use physical violence against them. Um, so... Um, if you go and just punch somebody in the nose, I say you're coercing them, right? even if you didn't do that to get them to perform any action. Um, but and the re it doesn't matter whether that's the use of the word coercion in English. What matters is this kind of activity that I'm talking about is one that there's normally a pretty strong moral presumption against. Right? There's a pretty strong presumption that you shouldn't do this. Right. Um, so one one other question about just just the sort of conceptual terrain. Um, so uh, the threat to for of force, um, does it have to be a credible threat? Uh, hmm, I don't know. I guess so, if you threaten somebody with force and they don't believe you or don't have reason to believe you, maybe then you're not coercing them. Right? Right. But fortunately, that doesn't matter because the state threats <laughs> are very credible. Well, that's yeah. Fortunately, in one sense, uh, yeah, maybe not so fortunately. Another. Um, well, good. Okay, so that that helps to to set the problem. So the problem then it looks as if um, the problem is is something like this: 
authority is a very peculiar, alleged now, moral phenomenon. Um, and so like any good philosophical question, you look at something that uh, you know looks peculiar and you say what in the world could possibly – um, justify that or why should we um, believe that such a property exists? Um, does w w One other thing that struck me ab ab about the way you frame the problem even, even just now and in the book um, is that um, the, in setting the problem of authority, you don't rely on a premise about the moral equality of agents, right? So some ways of framing the problem of authority have to do with or, or, or get expressed in the following kinds of terms, right? How could authority relations be possible among presumptive moral equals? That is, if we're moral equals, nobody gets to push anybody else around. Um, authority is always an instance of somebody getting pushed around by somebody else. That kind of relation can never be justified among equals. Um, here it seems, and maybe this is a, a virtue of your formulation of the view, it doesn't seem that that's at least playing uh, sort of a center stage role as it as it often does. Is that a deliberate um, uh, feature of the view? Well, I guess it is. I mean, I don't I don't think the correct approach is to start with absolutist moral principles, right? Like a difference in status can never be justified. The way I think we should start is with principles like, well, there's a presumption that a certain kind of behavior is unjustified, right? So I'm not saying coercion is never justified. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying anything with is never justified at the end of it. I'm just saying there's a presumption. Um, now, as far as the value of equality goes, um, yeah, I think there's a presumption that people are moral equals. So it becomes the burden of the status to explain why the state has this unusual moral position that seems to set it above all other agents. Right, right. Okay. Um, so the answer that you give then to uh, the problem or what we might say the, the question of authority, how can authority be justified is that in fact it can't um, yeah. and that there is no authority. It's just um, as you say um, at one point and we'll get to discussing this in a little bit, uh, you know, authority or the widespread belief in authority is a kind of um, uh, illusion or or maybe even it's a kind of deception perpetrated against us and we'll talk about that again in a minute. Um, but um, – and so the denial of, of uh, authority in this sense then is um, is anarchism. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, uh, anarchism in this sense because it looks as if it's a philosophical position rather than um, you yeah. know a program of, of, of throwing um, bottles and bricks and things? Right, yeah. Yeah, so political philosophers distinguish between philosophical anarchism and political anarchism. These names are misleading, okay, because both views are philosophical and both views are also political. Okay, but anyway, philosophical anarchism is usually defined as the view that you don't have an obligation to obey the law just because it's the law. Um, and this is, um, this is taken up in the first half of the book. Right. And I would add to this also that uh, nobody's nobody is entitled to coerce other people just because they work for the government. Right. right. Um, it might be that the government agents are entitled to coerce people, but the reason couldn't be just because they work for the government. Um, and um, political anarchism is usually defined as something like the view that the best society would have no government. Notice right. that these are distinct. You could believe that the government doesn't have a special moral status but still think that the best society would have a government. Uh, now, in fact, I advocate both forms of anarchism. 
So the first half of the book is to defend philosophical anarchism, and the second half is to defend political anarchism. Um, that is to explain how an anarchist society could actually work pretty well. Right. Um, so now asking particularly about the first part of the book, which is um, an argument for, uh, as you say now, philosophical anarchism or the philosophical component of, uh, of, of anarchism. Um, and that argument proceeds, it seems, um, in largely a negative sense. And it's a, it's a kind of burden shifting, uh, 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 yeah. argumentative strategy where, uh, you, you begin, uh, I think very compellingly, uh, by suggesting that, um, you know, the claim that there are authoritative bodies or that there is, um, uh, such a thing as relations of authority is a puzzling phenomenon. Um, you know, these are puzzling sorts of claims. W what could justify them? And then you run through, um, several of the familiar, and I suspect to our listeners, some of these will be highly familiar accounts that are, pro-authority. And by pro-authority, I just mean they countenance authority. They're not, you know, uh, recommending uh, particular exercises of it. Um, and so one of the, the standard um, types of pro-authority views uh, uh, is a, a, some version of a social contract view. Yeah. Now, you think that any version of contractarianism um, is going to be a failure. Uh, can, can you run us through some of those considerations? Yeah. So the the traditional version was the view that we actually made a social contract at some time. Uh, this is from John Locke. Um, the, the main problem with this is the alleged social contract doesn't satisfy the conditions that would be imposed on any other contract in any other context. Right? So the claim is that in some way we've agreed to have a state and we agreed to obey them. Right. But, Nobody can show you the actual contract with everybody's signatures on it. And, you know, nobody remembers the event at which we got together in this meeting and we all said that we agreed. Um, the most common thing to say about that is then, well, maybe we agreed implicitly, not explicitly. And agreeing implicitly is supposed to be um, not actually saying that you agree, but behaving in such a way that it implies that you agree, right? Okay, and then the most common, um, most popular accounts of how we did this are um, you agree by either using government services or simply by residing in the territory that's controlled by the state. Okay, there are other things that people could say, but those are the two most common. Um, but if you think about it, you know, these are kind of, kind of crazy. Um, <laughs> so... Um, but, but, well, let me just add, they're crazy b because um, on these kinds of implicit or what Locke himself calls tacit consent views, it looks as if it would be possible to consent to something without ever knowing it. Is yeah, that what's crazy about it? That's one thing, yeah. I mean, just generally the point would be um, if you imagine anybody else in any other context claiming to have a contract with you on this sort of basis, um, it would be laughed out of court. Right? <laughs> you know, imagine trying to sue somebody. Uh, claiming that they had agreed to pay you a thousand dollars, and then arguing that the way they did that was by living in their house, right? right? Because you had offered them the opportunity to leave the neighborhood if if they didn't want to pay you a thousand dollars, and they didn't leave the neighborhood, so they agreed, right? That would be laughed out of court. Um, so, right, and, you know, right, and rightly how, so. Yeah. 
Um, it's unclear how the state can claim that we agree just because we're living in a certain place, right? Um, now, the state might be able to make that claim if they actually owned all of the land. And then they could say, well, then they wouldn't really need to appeal to agreement, right? The appeal would be to their property rights. They could say, you have to obey us um, as a condition on being allowed to use our property, namely our land. The only problem is there's no account of how the state would own all of this land uh, unless you assume that they already have political authority. Right? If they already have authority, then they can pass a law that says that they own everything. But if they don't already have authority, then they can't, you know, they can't do that. There's no other account that anyone has given of how they own all of the land, right? So they don't have the demand. They don't have the right to demand that everybody leave their own land if they don't want to have the state. Right. Um, so, so, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So um, the the other feature about, um, I mean, the other alleged way that you agree by using government services um, is a little bit less unreasonable. But uh, note that it doesn't apply to people who are, for example, living up in, up in the woods by themselves, but the government still imposes laws on those people, right? So if you're up in the woods by yourself and you're smoking marijuana, you could still be arrested for that. Um, so the government, do, the government does not make your obedience to the laws conditional on your using government services. Um, right. In fact, you know, I mean, there's no connection at all, right? The government claims that you owe them the same amount of taxes and you have to obey the same laws. And also they will pay, they will do the same things to you or for you, regardless of your decisions, right? Whether you send your kids to public schools or not, you're still paying the same taxes, right? And so um, so it doesn't, doesn't look plausible to claim that you agreed to pay the taxes by sending your kids to public school, right? And, you know, right. similarly for other government services. Right. So it looks then that um, that sort of uh, that kind of social contract view, which tries to um, make use of the concept of either implicit or explicit actual consent, um, isn't going to work. But I, I take it that you know, and this is a, a a feature of of sort of political philosophy as 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 we uh, even now still practice it. That's always puzzling to me is the the prevalence of a variation on that kind of contract view, which is the hypothetical contract view. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, this gets a, a this gets a um, the back of the hand in a way in your book, but you know, and I think rightfully so because it is a very strange variation on the contract story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on on the surface of it, it's it's a weird theory to me, but it's been very popular, you know, in the last few decades. I assume basically because of the influence of John Rawls. <clears throat> yeah, so the idea is in some way you can appeal to an agreement that we didn't actually make but would have made in some hypothetical situation. Um, now, there are some cases in which it looks like a merely hypothetical agreement could be morally relevant. Right. So here's a um, good example for hypothetical consent. You have an accident victim who's just been brought into the hospital the accident victim is unconscious, and uh, but he needs a blood transfusion. Now, normally, you can't give somebody a blood transfusion or any other medical treatment without their consent. So normally, you would ask the person, hey, you know, here's our medical opinion. Uh, will you accept this treatment? But the person is unconscious, so you can't ask them. So you give them the blood transfusion anyway. What's the just justification for this? 
Uh, it looks like a plausible justification is, well, they would have consented. They didn't actually consent, but they would have consented if they were conscious or something like that, and we had asked them. Okay, um, but you can see that the hypothetical social contract is not at all like that, right? So the government can't plausibly make the same kind of appeal. Um, all of the citizens would have consented. The first problem is in the accident victim case, the reason why hypothetical consent can be legitimate is that you can't ask the person. Like if, if they're conscious and you can ask them, then you have to. You can't just right. assume that they would have consented. Um, and, you know, secondly, actually, it's just false. Like there are some people who would not consent if the government were to ask them. Right. So, you know, the government could do this, like the IRS could put on their tax returns when they send out the tax returns every year. They could have a little box that says, check here if you want to have a government and you'll check here if you don't want to have a government. And then you would get a complete refund if you check that you didn't want to have a government. Why are they not going to do this? Okay, they're not going to do this because too many people would check the box that says, I don't want to have a government. Right. right. And then they wouldn't get the money that they wanted. Okay. But that's not legitimate, right? You can't, um, you can't justify not getting people's actual consent by appealing to the fact that they wouldn't give it. Right. <laughs> All um, right. So it's very puzzling how the hypothetical social contract is supposed to be different from this. Um, you know, there are a number of suggestions that philosophers have made. Um, John Rawls at some point says, well, the hypothetical consent, um, all it really does is it, it shows what follows from some moral principles that we generally accept. Um, and so, you know, what he says is that he designs a hypothetical situation in which everybody is um, equal to each other and the situation is guaranteed to get a fair outcome. And then um, what people would agree to in that situation is therefore fair. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, again, if you if you think about a case involving a non-governmental agent where the non-governmental agent tries to make this appeal, it really doesn't go over. Right. Um, right. So, you know, here's one of my hypotheticals. Um, imagine that somebody has made you a job offer and the terms of the offer are so favorable that any reasonable person would accept it. Imagine that it's completely fair to you. Imagine that, you know, in a hypothetical situation in which you were fully informed and rational, you would accept the job offer. Suppose that nevertheless, you do not accept it. You tell the employer that you, you refuse to work for them. Is it now permissible for them to force you to work for them? Right. Now, almost everyone says no, right? Okay, so sure. what this shows is that it doesn't matter if it would be reasonable to consent, Right. Um, or, or if the thing that you're asked to consent to is fair, that doesn't take away your rights. If you, in fact, perhaps unreasonably refuse to consent, then that you typically um, cannot be coerced. Right. So, um, okay, so then it looks as if sort of both the, um, the, the, the non-hypothetical and hypothetical um, contract accounts uh, uh, look like they've at least – at the very least now, um, you'll want to say something stronger than what I'm about to say. But at the very least now, look like they're fraught with difficulties and it's hard to see um, uh, how they might be repaired. Yeah. Um, now, there is another sort of uh, track uh, within political philosophy um, that is uh, – you know, pro-authority in, in the philosophical sense, but still anti-contractarian, 
Um, and it's a broadly speaking now um, consequentialist uh, uh, defense of the idea of authority. Um, and you know, this you get this in Hume and all kinds of other people, right? Uh, where the thought is that um, they'll agree with you that the contract is not is not going to uh, be a good way to explain or justify authority relations. And then they just try to appeal to some uh, more direct uh, consequentialist considerations, like what would the consequences be um, uh, if there weren't some somebody or somebody in authority? Um, that's one version. Uh, and another version, I guess, is sometimes called the fair play argument. You owe it to others. Uh, to enter into cooperative social relations uh, and to not be a free rider on those relations uh, when you you know show up in the world and they exist, uh, so you have a moral duty to uh, to play along uh, as if there were authority, and uh, maybe that's all there is to there being authority. Um, can you tell us why these uh, more consequentialist, uh, broadly speaking, accounts are also flawed? Yeah, so I mean, there are a number of things to say. Um, the the notion of authority is a little bit complicated. Um, so there, there are a number of different conditions that I discussed, but maybe the, the most important and difficult to defend part of authority is the idea of content independence. It's the idea right. that you should obey the law even when the government was wrong, right? Even if it's a bad law, you sh you're still obligated to obey it and the government is still entitled to enforce it. And it's going to be very difficult to get that out of a consequentialist theory. Okay, now to, to motivate the kind of consequentialist and or fairness arguments, here's an example. And so I think this is an example that the advocates of these theories would like. Um, you're on a life raft and the life raft is taking on water. Water needs to be bailed out. Other people on the raft are bailing out water. You should bail out water too, right? It'd be unfair to the other people to not bail out water um, and or you could appeal to the consequences, right? You know, you have to keep the boat afloat. If people don't bail out the water, the boat is going to sink. Um, okay, but advocates of authority are claiming something stronger than this, right? So um, I think a fairer analogy would be um, there's somebody on the life raft who wants you to help bail out water, and he also wants you to give $20 to his friend, and he also wants you to pray to Poseidon the god of the ocean. Okay. Um, plausibly, you should bail out the water, but you don't have to give the money and you don't have to pray to Poseidon. And why not? Because giving the money doesn't help save the boat. It's not actually a good idea. And praying to Poseidon also is useless. Right. And so, I mean, just applying this analogy, it would seem like if the government makes a law that tells you to do something that is really a good idea, then you should still do, you should do it. You know, um, it's not the case that you should just defy the government just for the sake of defying them. But if they tell you to do something that's useless, right, or even something that's harm, harmful, then, you know, it's not clear that you would have any reason to do it, right? Um, and I think there are many examples of this. So the drug laws are probably the biggest example, right? Um, it's really hard to give a consequentialist argument for why the government is entitled to take people prisoner, right, and lock them up for many years because they're consuming recreational drugs. Right. Um, and, but I, I take it that um, at least some of the, the versions of the fairness or the fair play kinds of arguments um, would want to um, 
even say things maybe even about the the Poseidon directive or the the, the command to pray to Poseidon that um, if this is something that is required of you in order to express your interest in being a fair player um then that's then that is a reason to do it that there might be some things that are useless from the point of view of saving the boat but would be useful from the point of view of um marking or expressing your fair dealing uh with the others um and could that if we introduce that or we say, imagine the, the fair play theorist who wants to say that kind of thing, yeah. um, how does that complicate uh, uh, the critique then? Yeah, but I just don't see how that – I don't see how praying to Poseidon is fair or failing to pray to him is unfair, right? Um, I mean so you might think if – so suppose that some of the people are praying to Poseidon even though they don't really believe in him. And then just because they think that this guy on the boat has authority and then you're not praying, you might say, well, this is unfair because the people who are praying have this extra burden. Uh, maybe that is unfair, but the unfairness is not your fault. Right? The unfairness would be the fault of the guy who's telling them to pray or maybe their own fault because, you know, they should just not be following that command. Right. 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 I mean, if they're imposing an unnecessary burden on themselves and then they're complaining that they have to have this burden while you don't, it's not your fault. <laughs> that seems right. Um, good. Um, so let me move on then. Um, so uh, one of the um, sort of compelling, uh, most compelling, I should say, uh, parts of the book is the discussion of um, the psychology of authority. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that uh, philosophers, I, th- I think, uh, are right uh, to, to, to feel they have the burden of doing uh, especially in in a case like yours, where you're you're, you're in, in a way debunking a widespread uh, um, um, uh, philosophical position, you're um, exposing flaws in what um, standardly are taken to be winning arguments uh, for that philosophical position. Um, it's always open to defenders of uh, of authority in this particular case to just say things like, "Well, look." Um, you know, I can appeal to common sense intuitions too. Everybody seems to think that there are such relations as authority relations. And everybody seems to think that, you know, there is such a thing as legitimate government. Um, you know, you, uh, Michael Humer, are the one who has the, you know, counterintuitive and non-commonsensical view of these matters. Um, and so it's 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 a commendable aspect of the book that you see fit to – um, try to give an account of why, you know, it's the case is just a matter of sort of a man on the street psychology uh, that the man on the street uh, is is so um, comfortable with the thought that there uh, are authoritative institutions and persons. Um, so c- can you run us through a little bit uh, of the argument uh, by which you try to show, you know, not only that there's no good reason to believe in authority – but also that uh, you try to give an account for the widespread belief that there is a justification of authority. Yeah. Uh, and the thesis winds up being that authority is a kind of illusion or maybe it's a, a kind of deception that is perpetrated against us. Yeah, so this is a good question, right? Um, you know, I say that I'm relying on common sense morality, but of course the position that I'm arriving at is not common sense 
it's um, a revisionary political philosophy. And so you might wonder, yeah, why can't people appeal to common sense political intuitions, you know, right. just just to justify the claim that um, the state does have authority? And so what I try to do in Chapter 6 is um, undermine the political intuitions about authority um, by giving kind of debunking explanations, giving explanations for why people would have this kind of um, allegiance to the state, even if, in fact, nobody had authority. Um, now, there are several different things I suggest that um, I can't go into all of them, so I'll just mention a couple things. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing is there's a very interesting phenomenon known as Stockholm Syndrome. Um, this is a phenomenon where people who are taken captive and are under somebody else's power start to emotionally bond with their captor. It's named after this incident that occurred in Stockholm, Sweden. There was a bank robbery in which some people were taken hostage in the bank vault. And over the course of a few days, they started to develop this kind of emotional bond with the kidnappers. Um, So, uh, you know, at one point, the hostages thought that the kidnappers were protecting them from the police. And at the end of the whole siege, when the police were putting tear gas into the vault, the hostages refused to leave without the kidnappers because they were afraid that if they left the kidnappers alone, the police might shoot the kidnappers. Okay. Right. Um, so uh, what's the explanation for this? Um, and, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of weird, right? But uh, so here's an evolutionary hypothesis. Um, in human history, it's been very common for one person or group of people to have a lot of power over other people. And in that situation, your survival and prosperity may depend upon your forming an emotional bond with the kidnappers uh, or with whoever it is that has this great power. Uh, You might have to please that other person in order to either get resources or even just to survive. Uh, And you can please them by kind of taking their side, right, kind of identifying with them and – maybe the most reliable way of pleasing them is genuinely starting to like them. Okay, so um, on the other hand, people who think that those with great unjustified power are just bad people and are constantly resisting them are more likely to get get killed by the people in power. So um, over time, we might have evolved this mechanism, which is shown in the Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, So my suggestion is, well, a similar kind of thing might be applying to our attitudes toward the government. The government has enormous power. It has enormous control over our society more than any other organization and, you know, more than any other person has ever had. The United States government probably has the power to kill literally everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, it might be that this, this kind of evolutionary mechanism comes into play um, that you start to kind of identify with them. Um, and right. kind of share their their values and goals. Right. Uh, and there's also um, a discussion of, uh, you know, the other – well, another uh, familiar set of uh, phenomena that are um, associated with Stanley Milgram. Can yeah. we talk a little bit about that? Right, yeah. So – this is a very famous experiment, um, but in case in case some people don't know what it is, um, Milgram collected these people for an experiment that he told them was going to be an experiment about the effects of punishment on learning. So uh, what happens is you show up at the experimenter's office and they tell you, um, you know, there's another person there who appears to be just another subject of the experiment. 
And uh, the experimenter tells you, okay, so one of you is going to be strapped to a chair with little electrodes attached to you. And then the other one is going to read some information, right? And so the teacher is going to read information to the learner and then quiz the learner afterwards. And when the learner makes a mistake, then the teacher is going to administer an electric shock. <laughs> okay, now, uh, and each time, they, each time the learner makes another mistake, you're supposed to increase the voltage of the shock by 15 volts. Mm -hmm. right? And so it starts out at 15 volts, and then it goes all the way up to 450 volts. And so the experiment was really just to see how far people would go. Okay, and right. so Milgram throws in things like, you know, at one point, the guy starts, you go, you know, initially he's making grunts of pain, and then he starts screaming pain. At some point, he demands to be released from the experiment. Um, a little bit after that, he insists that he's no longer part of the experiment and refuses to provide any further answers, starts pounding on the wall. Um, and uh, in the original version of this, the learner is in is in the room next to the teacher, so the teacher doesn't directly see him. But so he starts kicking the wall, and then at some point he just goes completely silent. And the experimenter says, "You have to treat the absence of an answer as a wrong answer and continue with the procedure." Right. So you're supposed to just continue shocking the person, um, and then if the subject goes all the way and administers the 450 volt shock. After they've done that three times, then the experiment is over. Um, so the experiment was to see how far you could get people to go. Um, we should add that the we should add that the learner is an actor. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. right yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if, if this was real, then you know the learner would be electrocuted. Fortunately, Stanley Milgram uh, did not did not electrocute anyone. <laughs> so. Um, and uh, Milgram interviewed or he told people about this experiment and asked people to guess um, how many people would go all the way to the 450 volts. And the average estimate was um, people thought maybe 1% of the population would go all the way. The psychologists thought that a tenth of a percent would do it. And of the people that Milgram surveyed, none of them thought that they themselves would go all the way. Right, 100% said that they would refuse um, the actual result is that 63% of people go all the way. Wow. And this is quite shocking because, you know, if, if it had been what it appeared to be, they would have committed murder. They would have killed the learner in the other room. And for no reason other than that a guy in a, in a white lab coat is telling you to keep pressing the button, right? Right. Um, and, you know, presumably the government has an even stronger sense there's a stronger aura of authority around the government than around this scientist. Um, the government, in fact, even has, you know, they can put you in jail if you don't obey them. So, uh, and the, you know, it's, it's really kind of weird because the experimenter can't do anything to you, right? He can't put you in jail. All he can do is be mad at you if you don't obey him. Right. <laughs> okay. You know, he didn't threaten anyone with physical violence, but you know, what point does this illustrate? Um, I think it, it illustrates that when you're under the influence of an authority figure, um, it can kind of cause you to suspend your normal moral um, normal moral values, right? While they were in the experiment, people thought, um, kind of felt like they had to continue, right? They didn't like it. You know, they didn't want to electrocute the person, but they felt like they had to, right? But now we outside the experiment realized that of course they didn't have to, they could have just gotten up and left. Right. Right. Um, right. So, and 
so there's a very strong kind of pro-authority bias that kicks in when you're actually subject to this authority, when the authority is around telling you what to do. Uh, my suggestion is that this gives some evidence that even if, in fact, nobody had authority, people would probably still have feelings that other people had authority. Right? When somebody has a position of power, you would probably still feel as though you had, you had to obey them. Right. And do you think that part of the story uh, of this psychological um, mechanism uh, might be sort of tied to adaptive preference kinds of accounts where somebody – we realize that there is an institution or a set of people or a set of institutions in place that has this – wields this enormous uh, power over us and so the belief that those institutions or those people have – legitimate power, have a, a moral claim to wield that power is a way of um, uh, explaining to ourselves the fact that we're under the power, yeah. sort of an exposed justification or something. Yeah. I mean, so I, I think one feature is uh, if you believe that the government's power is illegitimate, um, you know, most people obey the government, you know, regardless of whether it's legitimate or not. Uh, most people obey the government and, you know, to the point of giving very large amounts of money to the government, right? Um, you could explain what's going on by saying, well, they're, you know, it's completely illegitimate and therefore, you know, almost everyone in my society is wrong and there's this um, fundamental injustice in the basic structure of my society. And the only reason why I'm going along with it is that I'm afraid. I'm afraid that, right. you know, they're going to send the armed men to my house to punish me. Okay, now that might actually be the truth. I think that is the truth. But that's not a thing that is comfortable, right? That's not a comfortable belief to have. Uh, it feels better to believe that you're obeying the government because, you know, you're conscientious and you're doing your duty to society, right? And that, and it's more comfortable to believe that your society is basically just, right? Uh, it's more comfortable to be in line with the rest of your society. Right. Um, well, good. So uh, if, if those uh, arguments uh, – if that account goes through, then we've got a good reason uh, to to think that um, authority – there are no authority relations, there are no authoritative bodies and uh, authority is a, a kind of uh, illusion or a collective kind of deception. Um, so tell us now about the, the alternative uh, anarchist vision that, that – that you uh, provide, because again, one of the nice things about uh, about the book, the problem of authority, is that um, you know you spend a lot of time making the case for thinking both that uh, a society without authority is possible, and for thinking that a society without authority is, um, for all kinds of reasons, um, uh, desirable. Uh, yeah. A lot of the anarchist literature tends to get thin on this point, right? right yeah. um, so, could you tell us a little bit about the the the, the positive? anarchist proposal. Yeah, so uh, to clarify that the view of anarchists is not that we should have complete chaos. Uh, it's not that everyone should do whatever they want or that there shouldn't be any laws. Um, and also it's not that nobody should ever coerce anyone. Um, but at least in my version of anarchism, the view is that the services that are presently provided by the government should be privatized. And so um, now, if you're generally sympathetic to capitalism, then 
um, it's much easier to make this argument. If you're generally unsympathetic to capitalism, then I probably can't say enough. You know, I have to first convince you that capitalism in general is a good idea, uh, and I probably can't do that now. Okay, but if you think that in general capitalism works better than socialism for most um, industries, right? like most industries should be controlled privately, not by the government, then you should just start to think, yeah, why are the services provided by the government different from all the other goods and services in the economy? Right, so one of the services that the government provides is security. They have police officers who are supposed to patrol and then prevent people from committing rights violations. Uh, why is that service different from all the other services in the economy in that it couldn't be provided by private businesses? And so that, I, you know, I don't, don't see how it's different, right? Um, my answer is, well, there isn't actually any difference. Um, so you can have uh, property owners or associations of property owners hire security guard companies instead of the government police. And there could be multiple different competing security companies. Now, the reason why this is supposed to be better than the government police is um, two aspects. First, it's voluntary. That is, if you have the security guard companies, it's because you voluntarily chose to hire them. And second, uh, there's competition. That is, there could be multiple different providers of security in the same geographical area, whereas the government, in contrast, has a coercive monopoly. Right? Um, and you know, the, the problem with that is the same as the problem with monopolies in general. Right? Typically, if somebody has a monopoly of an industry, they start charging very high prices, they lower the supply, and the quality tends to go down. Um, because basically, the person with a monopoly can get away with almost anything. Right, so the, And that's pretty much the situation that the government is in. Uh, if they provide a bad product, you don't have much choice. You can't like decide, I'm going to fire the police or I'm going to hire a different police department. Right. Um, so that's, that's the answer to what to do about the government police service. Um, the courts could also be privatized. So the idea is that there can be private arbitration companies. If there's a dispute between two people, it can be solved. It can be resolved by um, a third party, a private, um, a private company. And there could be multiple of these arbitrators that operate in the same geographical area. Right. And um, what about disputes about um, – uh, I take it that the arbitrators in this case would be um, in the business of uh, – sort of settling um, conflicts where someone has violated another person's rights or taken another person's property. Yeah. What about cases where what's, um, what's at issue is um, what the person's rights are or what it is for something to be property? Yeah. Yeah. So you might wonder where are the rules going to come from, right? Like maybe you can right. understand how the private companies can adjudicate whether you violated the rules or not, but where do the rules themselves come from? Um, well, basically, it would be a kind of common law system. So uh, it used to be that most of the law in the United States and England and other countries influenced by England was common law, which is to say it was created by judges. Um, the way this happens is two people have a dispute. They go to the court, and um, the judge makes the decision that seems most fair to him and in keeping with the, the customs of the society. And then he writes down the rationale for his decision. Later, if another judge has a case that's similar to that case, he looks up 
what the previous judge said, right, and tries to follow that precedent. Now, um, you know, this is not just a hypothetical thing, right? This is the actual origin of the common law, um, right. which is a very complex and sophisticated and subtle system of law, right? So the idea is that the private arbitrators would follow this kind of practice. Um, they were, if they encountered a case where there wasn't a generally accepted answer yet, they would have to exercise their moral judgment, and then they would write down an explanation for why they made the decision they did, which would then become a precedent for future cases. Right. Um, so say something a little bit about um, uh, why you would think that um, that that this kind of uh, social arrangement uh, is morally desirable. Uh, yeah. Now, you know, this, you've, you've given reason to think, well, there, there, there are ways to see how it's possible. We've got a, you know, a way that we could think of certain kinds of goods and services are privatized and other kinds aren't. Well, the, the, the practical proposal is we privatize, you know, police and, uh, and the rest. Um, well, maybe before that, do we also privatize the army? Um, that's probably going to be difficult. Some people say that, that, um, we can do that too, but it's probably going to be a little bit difficult to have a private army, um, because of the public goods problem. Um, because it is a public good. Um, one thing is, well, you can have just individual citizens being armed, um, which right. incidentally was kind of the plan that the founders of the United States initially had, right? They'd intended for just ordinary citizens to be armed and that would deter invasion. Okay, now many people think that this is an unrealistic way of um, defending yourself from a modern governmental military um, because, you know, if some hostile foreign government comes in, they're going to have tanks and bombers and things like that. And, you know, ordinary private citizens are not going to have that. Okay, but, you know, I would, I would remind you that there are actual cases, you know, multiple cases in the last hundred years where, um, Citizens armed with personal weapons have, in fact, successfully defeated the armies of very large and very powerful nations. Right. right. So the Viet Cong defeated the United States in Vietnam. The Mujahideen defeated the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. Um, the um, the British government was defeated in Ireland. The French government was defeated in Algeria. Um, again, all by these non-governmental rebels. And. You know, the, incidentally, these the four countries I just mentioned are the four most powerful countries in the history of the world. The United States in the 20th century, most powerful military in, in the history of the world. Soviet Union in the 20th century, second most powerful. Britain, third most powerful. And France, fourth most powerful. So if the four most powerful countries in the history of the world could have been defeated by, you know, guerrillas with personal weapons, um, we should think that it would be very difficult right, in, in these times for an invader to take over the anarchist society, provided that the ordinary people are armed. Right. But even in these cases, though, wasn't it at a sort of great expense to the yeah. societies to win these victories? Yeah, it was. Yeah, the rebels take uh, much greater losses than the invader. But right. they, the reason they win is that they have much greater commitment because most people are more committed to defending their homeland than they are to attacking somebody else's home. Right, right. So the book ends then on on a what uh, what I read anyway is sort of a, an optimistic note where um, the, the claim is made actually that um, uh, 
the move from uh, feudal societies and various kinds of hierarchical social structures to contemporary forms of democracy is, of course, a kind of moral improvement. Um, and then uh, the argument is made that um, there are reasons to think that, um, you know, uh, that that out of out of uh, modern democracy. Um, anarchist or anarchist societies could develop. Can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, do you read that as, I mean, I read it as optimism on your part. Is it a, yes. an optimistic conclusion? Yeah, that's correct. Um, yeah. So one thing is, um, I think there's been enormous progress over time, um, in human society, intellectual progress, um, intellectual and moral and practical. Um, we've had a lot of movements from terrible social practices to not so terrible practices, right? And you can give multiple examples. And this is widespread. It's not just in the United States. It's throughout the world. So it used to be that slavery was very widely practiced, um, you know, in human societies throughout human history. And by now, it's illegal everywhere in the world. Uh, it used to be that basically every country in the world was a dictatorship. Now about half the world is democracies. Um, it used to be that even in the allegedly democratic countries, half of the adult population couldn't vote because they were deemed inferior, right? So now there's basically no country that's like that. There's no country that allows people to vote, but only the men and not the women, right? Um, right. As far as I know. Okay, and um, you know, it used to be that the the method of entertainment in ancient Rome was to have the gladiators um, forced to fight against each other and you know chop each other to pieces with these swords and axes and so on. Uh, Nobody does that today, right? So right. there are just multiple ways in which there's moral progress. Um, and I think that the best way, the best explanation of this is there are actual moral truths, and over time, people get closer to the truth. Um, this is true in other areas. It's true in you know, all other areas of human intellectual endeavor, in the sciences, in history, in philosophy, in mathematics. Um, and if there are moral facts, as I maintained in my previous book, we would expect the same to be true in ethics, right? right. And, and then you get to the, the next point, which is, well, I claim that this skepticism about authority is also the objectively correct moral view. Uh, and so eventually the moral progress will get to that. We'll, we'll get to the point where other, you know, most people get skeptical about authority as well. Uh, I also claim that you know, there's kind of – you can see in the substantive values that people have been moving towards – that they're not really consistent with the idea of political authority, right? Because um, what's happened over time, like one of the big trends is there's um, much greater resistance to using force and violence against people. It used to be that people would use violence all the time for trivial reasons, uh, and now people are much more reluctant. Um, also, there's been a big move in the direction of equality, of treating people as having equal moral status, Okay, and so I claim that both of these values are consistent with anarchism and not really consistent with statism. Um, the state is inherently founded on uh, unjust threats of violence against people, and it's an inherently inegalitarian institution. Having a state is inherently saying that some people are in a morally superior position to others, that they have extra rights that other people don't have, and so on. Right. right. Well, excellent. Um the book again, um, the problem of political authority, uh, is, is, is one of the, uh, endorsers on the back of the book, Jason Brennan puts, it's a, it's a kind of page turner. Um, 
so Michael, um, you've been very generous uh, with your time in, in talking about the book. Um, last question. Um, what's your next project? Well, I have a bunch of papers I'm working on. I guess I'll just mention one of them. I have a paper in which um, um, I want to argue in favor of moral realism on the basis of this moral progress, um, because there are people who try to give other explanations of our moral beliefs, either in terms of evolutionary psychology or in terms of our culture. And I want to suggest that these these theories aren't able to explain why there's been this kind of moral progress, right? And you have to be a moral realist in order to explain that. Well, excellent. Uh, I'll keep an eye out for that. And um, uh, for now, though, uh, just thank you so much uh, for talking to us today uh, about your book, The Problem of Authority. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Michael Humer of the University of Colorado at Boulder. We were talking about his new book, The Problem of Political Authority, an examination of the right to coerce and the duty to obey which is recently published by Palgrave Macmillan. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.